Hello and welcome to the Better Human podcast. My name is Adam Wagner and I'm a barrister specialising in human rights. And this podcast is all about human rights. Today I'm joined again by Susie Allegre, the first guest to appear twice on the podcast. And we're going to be talking about technology and human rights in the time of coronavirus. The Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering new LLB undergraduate course taught in London. And they're currently advertising for three new lectureships, including one on human rights. And you can find more about that on gold.ac.uk forward slash law. If you find this podcast interesting and want it to continue, then please consider giving a few pounds a month at patreon.com forward slash better human. Hi Susie, thanks so much for coming back to the podcast. This is you are the first guest to have appeared twice, so um, uh, that's um, a, a demonstration of how well the first one went. Oh, it's a real pleasure. Thanks for for inviting me back. Well, thanks, thanks so much for coming on. So, so we're going to talk about COVID nineteen and online technology, um, and there's a whole range of of issues arising. But we, I thought we'd start with government surveillance, which seems to be from a rights perspective, a clear and present danger arising from this this crisis and different in every country and every part of the world. Um, but can you see, has, do you think there's been an uptick in government, online government surveillance because of COVID-19? I think the real key to surveillance because of COVID-19 is the uh, use of smartphones and um, metadata, geolocation data, of smartphones um, alongside the development of, of new apps to monitor either symptoms or contact tracing or checking how far people are staying away from each other. Um, and so I think it's really in that question of the technology that we're carrying around in our pockets um, that there is a huge potential for increased government surveillance. And and in some states that is going down quite well, I guess. I mean, in in, in a str- there's been a slight, a, a strange reversal of the usual trend, I guess, of of people getting um, being inherently sceptical of of new government powers because of the very justified fear that people have, and and a thousand people so dying every day. I, I think it, it, you could say that in some countries people are saying, well, fine, I don't mind being surveilled as long as that decreases the likelihood of this virus spreading. Absolutely. And I mean, I think it's important to bear in mind um, the fact that international human rights law allows for limitations on rights like the right to private life in the interests of public health. And so in the current situation where you're dealing with a public health emergency um, globally and each country is grappling with its own permutations of that, then it's very clear that there are opportunities for discussion for um, greater limitations on our right to private life to protect our health than might be justifiable or necessary in other circumstances. And certainly, as you say, in this climate of fear where everyone is quite rightly frightened both for their own health but also um, for the health of, of, of others in our society, that we're more willing um, to countenance and to discuss the possibilities of technology tracking both ourselves and and our fellow citizens than we might be in other situations. And and if we look at examples around the world, so so if we look at where the coronavirus 
outbreak started in the Far East. So, and particularly China um, and South Korea, there's t- two different examples, two different kinds of, of states. But in China, and we spoke about this in the first podcast we did, there is already th- a, 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 an infrastructure of state surveillance, which is far, far um, more oppressive and uh, more extensive than there are there is in the UK or in most Western countries, um, based around you know, mobile tracking and facial recognition and those sorts of things. And and is there a an element of that being more suited to this kind of crisis than the infrastructure that we have? I'm not sure that I'd go as far as to say it's it's more suited, but perhaps people are more used to the kind of intrusive feeling of surveillance than we are. Um, in this country or in other Western democracies. I don't think that necessarily translates into the technology not being available um, in countries like the UK. Um, But I think that the big difference is how far the public are willing to accept um, a very obvious and intrusive um, form of surveillance. And those those kinds of powers. So, I mean, I was reading about Wuhan, which I think that the, the restrictions have now started to be lifted. But when they were fully in, in force and, and not forgetting that there, was, there have been forms of restrictions pretty much across the whole of China, there was they were using facial rec- recognition technology to prevent somebody from leaving their neighbourhood. Um, so you wouldn't be able to leave your neighbourhood unless you were logged as a person who had a, an excuse. And I think that is also that there's an app which is being used across the whole of China, which only allows you to travel um, if you are a, are an authorised person, which is all recorded on your on your app. And that does seem to be a, a very very different to the way our society is set up. Yeah, I think that's right, but I, I think it's. Um I don't think these kind of developments are peculiar in this current context uh, to China. So when you see uh, particularly responses to quarantine enforcement and COVID-19, Privacy International have been monitoring these developments. And when you see things like Cyprus has imposed a curfew and considering electronic surveillance to enforce quarantine, so that's a, a, a European Union member state. Um, Croatia as well, planning a GDPR-compliant quarantine enforcement app. Um, Argentina um, is also looking into quarantine enforcement and geofencing apps. Um, Montenegro published the personal data of, of people in isolation, and Bulgaria um, has authorised police to access citizens' telephone and internet data. So I think it, it, it's wrong in the current crisis to think that these kinds of techniques are restricted to China. Um, and as I said, I think maybe the difference between China and a country like the UK is more about public acceptance of this level of intrusive surveillance. But that public acceptance may well be shifting to a degree uh, because of the very genuine fears about public health. Yeah, and, and and in in those circumstances, it's very. I mean, I've found this personally. It's 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 difficult to know how to express skepticism or wariness of any new powers if the powers are justified, um, and and you know 
honestly justified by saying these powers are powers we need to prevent the spread of, of a virus that's going to kill tens, maybe even hundreds of thousands of people if we don't use the powers. But it's a it, that is a common tension in, in in all of these areas. I mean, I, I think probably terrorism or the the the, the anti-terrorism laws are the previous example of this where the the more fearful people are the more difficult it is to have that kind of balanced rational conversation in real time absolutely and i mean i think there are lessons to be learned from the way um the counter-terrorism narrative uh, was developed to increase surveillance powers and, uh, and limitation of rights and i think we can learn very much uh, from those experiences, particularly from the human rights perspective. We do have quite a lot of experience as human rights lawyers in looking at counter-terror um, legislation, for example, that's designed to protect lives um, and which therefore has um, a justification. And to look at that very carefully to decide what exactly is justified and necessary and proportionate. Uh, and I think that is one of the things that we need to be doing um, as human rights lawyers is looking at the proposals as they come in and asking uh, detailed questions of, well, what exactly is the purpose of this technology or this um, surveillance measure? What exactly is it designed to do? And does it actually do that? And making sure that whatever's brought in is really targeted to the purpose. So if it's designed... Um, for example, symptoms trackers, how do we make sure that whatever we are agreeing to um, only goes as far as is needed to be able to help us uh, challenge the, the progression of the virus and to understand the progression of the virus? How do we set down the limitations on what is really needed for that purpose? Yeah, and, and that is a conversation that has to be had at speed unfortunately um, i think it is it, i mean unfortunately i think it's quite a difficult conversation to be had at just a top level it's a conversation that has to be done in detail um, and how we make those conversations happen in the current environment is quite a complicated question i want to talk next about our online life um, and how that's changed as a result of coronavirus. And now the, the most obvious example of that is that we're all at home. <laughs> and yeah. not, and not all of us. Um, obviously, if we're, if we're key workers, we may be going into, into our workplace. But a very significant majority of people who previously would be working in an office most of the time, if not all the time, are now working at home or are now um, socialising at home. And that means using a lot more online tools or using online tools a lot more and how what kind of um impact do you think that has on on our on our lives and, and, and on our rights i think that there's a huge variety of, of impacts that that sort of the increased reliance on technology has on our lives i mean one of the most obvious things is that when we are put into a situation where we are having to direct pretty much our entire social working and commercial lives through the internet, if you like, or through technology, means that there is a huge potential um, for 
data about us to be grabbed on a, on an even more um, global level than it was before. So if you're living in a smart home and you're now 24 hours a day, seven days a week, or 23 hours a day and seven days a week sitting in your smart home, that means that all of the um, devices that you have in your home are able to monitor what you're doing, who you're talking to, what temperature you like to be living in, um, what you're saying, what your children are saying on a, on a permanent basis. And so there is, if you like now, an absolutely constant stream within uh, a device loaded home um, about your life, who you talk to, how you talk to them, how you're feeling. And just to pick up a few specific examples. So take Amazon, Amazon, you know, you could a lot of people have Amazon doorbells that the ring doorbells, which 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 monitor all the time, which are constantly on um, and monitoring movement outside the house. So they know when you come in and out, they can and it goes into a central server. A lot of people have Amazon Echoes um, or or um, Alexas, which record speech and um, respond to speech. And then there is also the fact that we're all buying things online even even more than we were before potentially subject to they're being delivered I mean, i've noticed amazon seems to still be delivering a significant amounts um, and and then just to add even more to that even more data to that I, I i read early on in this crisis the government mentioned amazon as one of the provide as, as going to be one of the providers for the um uh, testing kits and and presumably there's going to be a priority list at first for those testing kits. Well, I would assume of people who need those priority, those kits more, for example, if they're vulnerable or, or, or have underlying conditions or whatever. But if there is, then that means the government will be sharing potentially with Amazon even more data about us. But, but that, I mean, that's good for Amazon. Um, and maybe it's good in some narrow sense for us that Amazon will be able to tailor our adverts to us more, but th there are significant risks there. Yes, I mean, there are significant risks. And I mean, just on the on the front of Alexa, you know, I discovered one, one of the um, side effects of being stuck at home all day is how you're going to entertain your children. And so while trying to prevent constant YouTube access uh, for music videos, I downloaded um, Amazon Music and suddenly discovered that I had Alexa on the iPad or my daughter discovered that I had Alexa on the iPad who could be spoken to having closed down Siri and never having thought about buying an Alexa. And so that I think is a sign of how much more information um, companies like Amazon are going to be able to get, as you say, around our shopping, but also as we put more apps on our devices and are not necessarily aware of what that means in terms of the level of listening devices that we're bringing into our homes. And I think the point that you made about about vulnerable um, customers and, and testing kits is an increase is an incredibly important one because again our access to um, medicines and health advice is all increasingly going online. Um, you know, GP services are increasingly going to be accessed online. So it's not only health information around the coronavirus, but just more broadly 
the information about us that's being shared. And in terms of sharing information about vulnerable consumers, you know, all of the uh, big supermarkets are providing um, delivery, priority delivery to people who are classified as vulnerable um, under the government guidelines. And so those people are having to be registered as vulnerable and that information is then being shared with whichever supermarket delivery system it is to see whether or not those people should be prioritized. And I think there's a, a very big question about what happens to that data once this uh, crisis is over. Because while you may appreciate being a priority customer um, this month when it's incredibly hard to get a delivery, whether or not you want your local supermarket to know um, that you have particular health vulnerabilities uh, in general terms, I think is highly debatable. Well, also supermarkets have other businesses. So, you know, Tesco have an insurance business. How do we, how, is, uh, can we be sure that all of that data is being strictly confined to the per for the purpose of online shopping and, and and supermarket shopping which and and i should say that's it's an extremely useful intervention in one sense because it helps vulnerable people stay at home which is the most the, which is the absolute best way for them to avoid being subjected to the virus but it does it's it's another issue which you can imagine within government they're they're rightly having to prioritize getting the thing working and then get on to the next thing you know they've, they've dealt with shopping now on testing kits you know they have finite resources but the question is when you set up these systems which ordinarily would take months and months or years um and uh, of scrutiny and now they're being set up in in hours well i think as well one of the other concerns and you're absolutely right about that question of cross-pollination of data and how it gets used and sort of aggregated and disaggregated i suppose one of the things that this situation uh, could help to do is highlight the scale of information that companies have on us and actually reopen or refocus the debates about what is valid, what is legal, what is lawful uh, for after the crisis. One of the things um, that I have seen happening um, in relation to commercial data and information being available on us including the kind of real-time information um, that is gathered from social media or our online activities, giving a hint as to how upbeat or sad or worried we may be, is that there are now um, companies that are selling new um, customer segmentation based on how people are responding to this crisis as an opportunity for advertising and, and sales. And that, I think, is hugely disturbing. And what are those companies? They are effectively data brokers. So they are companies that sell customer insights for targeted advertising online. Should we talk about Zoom? <laughs> now, yes. Zoom is, Zoom is. I have to say, it, it came across my radar very briefly when I was trying to find a decent way of, of setting up a video meeting about a year ago and it didn't work very well but it seems to now be working very well and in fact if i could put this in a non as non-flippant a way as possible has had a very good crisis because i, I imagine that, that it's it, you know it's, it's suddenly become a worldwide to tool perhaps on the same level as the, the the real giants like facebook and amazon um now this is working really nicely and i guess 
well it's it's working nicely for groups of friends um for relatives who can't see each other that sort of thing but people are using it for business as well and for for very for very private stuff i mean the the, the government itself the cabinet was using it i don't know if it still is but it was at one point for cabinet meetings now what should we think about that and and how can we protect ourselves from the potential risks um, of this new-ish technology? Well, I mean, Zoom itself, as you say, has become one of the, the main platforms that people have been using in this crisis. Um, but it has already got its first legal challenge in California about sharing data with um, Facebook from users. Um, and I think for Zoom, while, um, as you say, it may be having boom at the moment it is also on a very very steep learning curve about what people will and will not tolerate in terms of data sharing and privacy um, and i think the issue is is wider than just zoom i mean i think it's the case for many platforms that their business models rely on data sharing and that again i think now we have an opportunity to ask ourselves whether this is a valid business model that as a society we're prepared to accept on a longer term. And I think it's interesting how the kind of data that, that is going across um, Zoom conversations and Zoom meetings, whether it's in a business context or social context. You know, I've heard about people having their um, you know, Friday afternoon work drinks on whatever platform it is that they're using. But many of these platforms allow for recording. And the idea that your informal work drinks are being recorded potentially or that the information about that is being shared, if you really think about it for a minute, that's really quite worrying. Whether it's what you're saying, what you're drinking, how much of it you're drinking, um, you know, we need to really think about these issues, about what kind of information uh, we are sharing across these platforms how it might be stored and how it could be used um, against us in the future. Well, it's easy enough to record without using the the uh, mechanism which shows other people you're recording because you could just put your phone up to the microphone of your of your computer, um, and that it just goes to show that there's just a it, it just it's a level of risk and um, you know potential interference with our privacy that we've we've not really given a huge amount of thought um, another that, area i think i suppose on the recording question though as well the que the wider question is who is recording you know whether it's just other people on the call or whether it's the companies themselves you know what they are doing with the, with the information from these calls yeah and and they may be they may be recording without listening but but by you know they might be recognizing uh, using artificial intelligence to recognise the number of times that a particular word is mentioned. Um, Precisely. Or... I, mean, I think as well in a work context, when you consider the kind of technology that's being um, developed and used around uh, sort of facial recognition or around um, assessing whether or not people are paying attention in class, which you've seen particularly in developments in, in China, um, you know, if you think about that being applied to yourself in a work meeting, uh, where a recording of a meeting may indicate whether or not you were daydreaming or really focused or whether or not you really understood uh, what was going on, you know, that can raise quite serious 
concerns. Yeah, that would be a concern for me. <laughs> I think that would be a concern for everybody. Yeah. Um, well, it's interesting. It's, I've already noticed with the with the Zoom meetings that because you're looking directly at the camera, it's actually quite um, it's quite difficult to to not pay attention, um, and it's quite it's 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 quite easy to see if somebody's not paying attention. It's it's a slightly different feel to a real meeting where you're only ever looking in one direction. Um, it's it, it is a straight the social social customs are are developing uh, and and are not quite it's not quite clear what what you're meant to be doing at particular times but I suppose that's that's more on the social side than the the right side um sh- should we talk about disinformation um, because this seems to have been I mean, it's a it's a feature of the the technological social media world anyway, and we've spoken about it in the context of elections before. But there is there's risks which don't apply necessarily in politics to a public health emergency where there are where there is dis- disinformation being spread, and particularly in the being turbocharged through the social media algorithms and um, p- and private WhatsApp groups and that sort of thing. Yes, no, absolutely, and I mean, I think the the coronavirus uh, crisis has really flagged up um, the problem of disinformation um, in ways that we're all seeing um, now that we are almost exclusively getting our information online or through local WhatsApp groups. Um, And I mean, I think it was the first week after the schools closed that I got my first bit of disinformation through, through a WhatsApp group. Um, which was a mock-up of a uh, government website saying that as of tomorrow, um, being outside would be a criminal offence, which was clearly untrue. Um, And when I saw it, it immediately struck me as being untrue. And so I went onto the government website and then circulated the correct government website um, with a a generalised... awareness raising message about not sharing anything on WhatsApp unless you personally have got it from the government website. Um, and that's been something that, that Facebook and WhatsApp have been really struggling with um, throughout this crisis, because on the one hand, WhatsApp is a real lifeline to local communities and people who suddenly find themselves isolated from each other um, physically that it's a way of offering community support and, and bringing people together. But it's also a very, very difficult platform for policing misinformation and making sure that whatever is being sent around large groups is true and is not harmful. I think it's very interesting um, that YouTube, looking at dealing with misinformation, um, decided to ban all videos about 5G Um, conspiracy theories. Uh, But I think how that pans out and what the potential unintended consequences of that are is something that we also need to watch. But it's just incredibly difficult in this in this time when it's so easy to mock up a um, a, a government guidance website or we've we've actually in our school groups we've had we've had a number not quite as serious as that but we've had a number of um, things come around with sort of NHS, the NHS logo at the top and says something like um, NHS Nightingale Hospital wants you to send all kids to send rainbows. Oh, yes, um, we have that to, one too. <laughs> to, to, which which it, it, it feels like it could be true, but you just, I mean, instinctively I thought, oh, well, I'm not, why would they want 
people sending in stuff to put on the walls and um, potentially transmitting diseases but anyway you know it's 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 really easy to just fling something across and i think there was a more insidious example a couple of days ago where there was a voice message that was sent around to lots and lots of people which was uh, purportedly from a, i think from a public health official who was saying you know that most of the people who are dying are actually younger than they're saying and we're going to it, it, we're going to have to change the laws to stop people leaving the houses this weekend something like that and it actually led to a, a, a pretty vague um a, a pretty vague rebuttal being published by the government saying we understand there are messages going round um bear in mind that nothing that comes around that you know apart from from our official accounts is 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 necessarily true and, and I, yes, think- I think that's right and i think it's it's incredibly difficult to identify what's true um and what's not true and i think on the whatsapp front um you know they have been really grappling with how to deal with this um, and they have now introduced new measures, which reduces the ability to send or to forward viral messages en masse. So limiting the number of people that you can send a message to, which at least slows down um, the spread of these kind of messages. Um, and Facebook as well, um, you know, on their, their social media platform, has also been struggling with the question of, of viral disinformation. Um, and again, it was, I think, in the first week um, of the social distancing rules that I suddenly found a, a, a post that I'd put on Facebook about how we should all phone each other more often now um, that we are stuck in our homes and how this might actually uh, be a renewal of communication rather than a block of communication. Um, and in a sort of Kafkaesque twist, it's the first time ever when I logged into Facebook and found that a post had been uh, removed because it was against Facebook's uh, spam guidelines. It was later, later put back up about, about 24 hours later, and I heard from a lot of other people who'd had similar things uh, removed. And, uh, and I'd sort of wondered um, whether if I'd been circulating something saying we could talk on WhatsApp, then maybe that would have been okay. Um, but joking aside, I think that that really demonstrated the challenges that the social media companies are having to get the balance right just by dealing with the scale of the problem and, and misinformation, disinformation um, campaigns, which can lead to real life um, problems. So like you're saying, with the, the question of, of getting everybody to post in children's pictures of, of rainbows, you know, that could lead to serious resource problems for hospitals having to deal with a sudden deluge of well-meaning posts that they've got to, to deal with. And as you say, the potential um, infection hazards, um, etc. But there are also the, the examples, and the famous one is the conspiracy theories around um, 5G being responsible for the coronavirus and people actually setting fire to 5G masks in the UK in response to, to those conspiracy theories, which are being driven very much um, through social media and through social media influencers sharing their views on this. I've just seen that the Ofcom are looking at the London Live um, publicize, you, you, allowing David Icke to use their network as a as a platform. Um, put it, I think they, pub, they they allowed him to 
broadcast an hour-long program. And it's those sorts of, you know, it, it, we know who the conspiracies are in, 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 some, in some measure. Yeah. Um, but I, I guess the challenge for the government, I mean, I actually think that there's, I've been thinking about this quite a lot in terms of how to, how the government, the police are managing to message, um, communicates people that what the regulations and the guidance say um, and how to stop people getting it wrong and, and the police are getting it wrong i think a lot of people are getting it wrong and it's just a real challenge of of how to maintain clear consistent communications that everybody knows are authentic um, and one thing i heard was in south korea i think it was south korea there was a whatsapp group set up by the government that any member of the public could join and they'd know that whatever came into that whatsapp group was was an official government um, communication which to me sounded quite sen sensible because that's how people communicate um, it's where people are and yeah. it's in, it's it's an easy method it's it's not great for searching it's not great for going backwards but it's 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 not and it's not great for detail but it's not bad for for author being authoritative which seems to be the issue here is how to verify what you're what you're reading and what you're seeing yes i mean i'm, I'm not sure how that differs I suppose, from just official websites, um, how the WhatsApp group is stronger. I mean, maybe it's just more accessible than an official I, I just think it's more... I, I don't think people know where the official websites are. I think that's that's the problem. I don't think it's obvious to people that you to find official websites, you go to gov.uk. Um, and even if you do go to gov.uk, it's actually quite confusing. You know, that there's, there's, there's a sort of what... If you want to find... I think the most important um, guidance for for everybody is the is the guidance on how to whether to when you can leave the house. Yeah, that's the that's the one that really matters. No, absolutely. I mean, and I suppose whether that's joining a WhatsApp group or whether it's just sending sending whether it's text message or WhatsApp message or whatever it is. I mean, the government presumably has those capabilities, and they have sent out some official messages. Yeah, well, exactly, and 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 I suppose it's just it's just a constant communications challenge, but it's but it's one which isn't unique to this crisis. It's just it's been brought into relief, like another a number of the issues we've discussed by the crisis. Yes, and I think that you know I suppose what's really flagged up in this crisis, as we've been talking about, is the the physical distancing. So the fact that people aren't just chatting in the in the supermarket queue. Uh, about what's happening it's very much uh, dependent on media and communications technology in a very formal sort of a way and j just to round up do you think that is this out of control is this something which we can which we can get even a handle on all this huge increase in in data which is probably going in and out of big companies of, of the government um or, or is it something which we we're just going to have to ride and pick up the pieces afterwards? I think it's quite difficult to deal with right now. I suppose one one thing that gives a bit of hope, and I think it was you actually that mentioned on your Twitter feed about the Scottish police um, hiring a, a human rights lawyer to advise them on the ways that they are um, implementing the regulations. If there was a way for, whether it's government or police, to be doing more active consultation about the human rights implications 
of the way that they, they are developing policy, which they're obviously having to do on a very fast basis, then that would be one way of, of getting a grip during the crisis. But what I think the crisis really does do is give us the opportunity to reflect on what it is we need and want from technology and what it is we really don't want. And I mean, I would argue that something like segmentation based on how afraid you are of dying is something that most of us don't really want uh, as a business model for our engagements, um, whether it's work, um, social life, or our commercial activities online. Um, and so I think that having all of these issues put in such sharp relief where we're absolutely reliant on this technology could well give us a springboard for rethinking what the business model, what the commercial model, what the social contract we have with technology is and should be for the future. Do you think there's any upsides? <laughs> I'd like to finish with an, with, with an upside because we're in, we are in a bit of a miserable moment um, in, in history generally. But um, I mean, I, I'll, start, I'll start with one. I, I, I think that the, the um, upskilling, if I put it like that in a sort of modern way, the upskilling of people who didn't necessarily know how to use online technology like video conferencing or weren't comfortable using it, perhaps because they're a bit older or because they're just a bit tech-phobic, tech that I think will create, that, that is a good thing in many instances because it will reduce, potentially reduce loneliness, increase, um, increase communications between families that wouldn't necessarily see each other in person anyway. And it does, and and I think that will come out of this crisis, and we will come in out of this crisis in a slightly different way. In that sense, that's my upside. I think that's right. I mean, I think the way we communicate is shifting. I've noticed that even where previously I was becoming quite despairing about the fact that everybody communicates by text in a way that reduces our expression and our communication with each other to to the bare essentials. Um, I've certainly noticed a change in that in my social world, that people are much more inclined to have a chat, whether that's a, a FaceTime chat or whether that's just picking up the phone. So as you say, that increase of communication and the upskilling of people to be able to reach out across borders um, and uh, through walls, if you like, to talk to each other more, um, more directly despite having to rely on, on, um, on technology to do it. But I think there's also been an increase in um, creativity. I think the way that the arts have responded, um, the way that people are accessing arts programs, reading poetry, uh, ordering books to be delivered, not only through Amazon, but through local uh, booksellers, I think is also a, a, a very good sign of people taking stock, if you like, of their situation and of their reliance on technology. And possibly the deluge of news and information that we get through social media is also meaning that some people are switching off in ways that they weren't um, before. And I think it's very interesting um, looking at uh, and rereading George Orwell in this time of crisis, looking at 1984 
of the fact that the ultimate act of rebellion was to sit down and handwrite anything in a journal outside of the vision of the ubiquitous telescreen is something that certainly I find in my life I'm, I'm living right now as I'm increasingly handwriting things in books, reading things in paper books and enjoying downtime from the technology. And I think that's something that is happening um, in many households. The Better Human podcast is supported by your contributions. If you find it useful and interesting, I would really appreciate if you consider giving just $3 a month. That's just over £2 via our Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash better human. And if a couple of hundred people do that, then that will make the podcast sustainable and I can carry on interviewing interesting guests about fascinating human rights subjects. Susie, we, we recorded this episode on Friday, on Good Friday, and over the weekend, there were a number of reports in, uh, in the newspapers that there is going to be an app which will allow for some kind of contact tracing. So the way this is work, going to work, apparently, and the, NH, the NHS is working on it, apparently, with Apple and Google, and it will, it, as, as best I can tell, it will only work by... Uh, explicit consent so you you would if you have this you download this app to your phone and you agree for it to be tracking you that's the one thing and second of all you if you exhibit symptoms of coronavirus you press a button in the app which alerts the app that you are now someone who is self-isolating or or is exhibiting symptoms or i guess if you've been tested then you can you can give that information as well Um, and then what then happens is because the app has been tracking your movement um, and also tracking lots of other people's movements if you have consented to the um, to the app doing that and someone else has consented to the app doing that and you have come into close contact which the app would know because it's it's locating both of you then it will give that uh, all the other people that you've come into close contact with during the period i guess that you've been exhibiting symptoms plus a few days before whatever the the science says is the is the contagion period and then it will send an alert to them which um tells them that they've got to self-isolate i think is is that is that a reasonable description of, of what it's going to do? That's my understanding um, from the reports um, over the weekend, that that is the plan. Um, I mean, I think it raises a number of, of very big questions. The first one is whether or not it's going to be effective. You know, what is the point? Um, if it's going to continue to be voluntary, and if it's going to be based on people exhibiting symptoms... Um, and sort of self-reporting on symptoms without any generalised testing programme in place. I'm not really sure what the point of it is. So opening up this um, potentially huge erosion of privacy that even though people may be consenting to it, it's very difficult to understand exactly what the implications of that consent are or how this may be used in the future. So eroding privacy to such a a huge degree, even with some kind of nominal consent, is hugely problematic if there's no effective justification. So so why wouldn't there be an effective justification? Because isn't the justification that this will keep us all safe from coronavirus? 
Well, I think without testing, then no. I mean, if you're talking about a voluntary scheme where just some people in the population have voluntarily downloaded an app, and those people wake up the, in the morning you know, feeling like they've got a little bit of a cough, which could be hay fever, could be coronavirus, and then every single person who's come into contact with those people who's on this app, who may be the person who was standing in the queue in the supermarket, it may be somebody who lives in the same building. It's very difficult to know exactly on what basis people are going to be identified as having been in, in close contact. Um, it, it's very difficult to understand how that effectively tackles the coronavirus question in the absence of proper levels of testing. Because effectively, you know, we're, we're indicating that we may be symptomatic, but the symptoms as they're being described, could also be any number of other things. Yeah, well, uh, well, I mean, obviously, a, co a cough or a temperature could be any number of things, but th those are the those are the typical symptoms. And maybe adding in, if they add in a couple of more, like losing sense of smell or, or whatever the current science says, if you're going to draw a, a, a cordon sanitaire around people who are who are potentially symptomatic and, and, and i accept that if you're going to it the idea would be you send a testing kit to every person in the uk or more than one testing kit and everybody can test whenever they want um you know like uh you can and you can buy them in boots or order them on amazon so let's just just assuming that that's not possible for practical reasons and i doubt it will be you know if they're, they're saying they're going to have a hundred thousand tests a day by the end of the month but that's not even you know it's, it's only a tiny percentage of the population so just assuming you can't test people you have to control this virus in some way and i think that the, the the justification for this the stated justification is that if you want either you lock everybody in their houses for the next year if, you know you continue on what's going on now or if you're going to allow some sort of return to normalcy or whatever version of normalcy we can we can um allow you have to have some sort of quite broad contact tracing otherwise you're just going to have outbreak after outbreak and, and and even if it's if it's inaccurate to an extent and there's going to be some false positive a lot of false positives potentially that's better than having everybody locked in the house for another year well i'm not sure because i think if you're landing up with false positives then you may land up with you know, discriminatory consequences of who's going to be stuck in the house for a year, um, which are likely to be the people uh, who are potentially most exposed. So if you're landing up, you know, with this contact tracing, people who are out and about at the moment are key workers, people who are stuck in, in closely confined uh, quarters, maybe, you know, people who aren't sitting in, in large detached houses are where you're going to see um, hotspots in the contact tracing. So the discriminatory impact of the contact tracing, combined with its lack of effectiveness, I think is is hugely problematic. And and what about privacy issues? Because so so what what the articles say is that all of the all the data will be handled according to the highest ethical and security standards and would only be used for NHS care and research and we won't hold it any longer than is needed. Well, I'm not exactly sure what how any longer than is needed means, particularly if you're talking about contact tracing that's going back, you know, weeks into somebody's contacts. You know, there's a very big question about what is defined as, as necessary in this context. And certainly in the, in the reports that I've seen, it's not clear yet how those definitions 
are going to be made or where those lines are going to be drawn. So it's all very well to say these are the highest standards and, and we're only going to keep it as long as we need it. But if we don't know exactly what it's needed for or how, it, how it's designed to be effective, which dictates how long it's needed for, I think it's impossible to say that it's being drawn to the highest standards of privacy. And, and what what kind of best practice would we be looking for in terms of the kind of transparency of how this data is going to be used? Is, is that even, is that something which is possible? Can you actually set out exactly, you know, with proof how, how the data is going to be used to an individual who is choosing whether to consent to this or not? In this context, I think it's very difficult on such a mass scale. I think it's very difficult to be able to understand and explain exactly how this is going to be used and how it's going to be contained. Um, and one of the things as well that I, I, I think is um, interesting is that by starting out on a voluntary basis, um, it, it's this idea that we are consenting on an individual level and so far there's no suggestion that this would be on a general level. But if you look at what's happening in South Korea, for example, the amount of information that is being given, which presumably is also being given on the basis that this will help people stay healthy, is including things like the person's nationality who's been um, diagnosed with coronavirus, what time they were in the lift or on the underground or wh wherever it was um, that you came into contact with them. And so by starting on a kind of voluntary basis, in order to make it truly effective, it's very hard to see how that can, can work without starting a level of mission creep, um, which would be extremely uncomfortable um, and very difficult to, to justify on a, on a proportionality argument. I just want to put one, one other argument, which I imagine will be put by the government, which is when a, an outbreak of a disease is at a certain low level, so a lowish, low enough number of cases, it's possible to do contact tracing. And that's what they were doing at the beginning. So they, everybody that come back from a skiing holiday in Italy exhibiting symptoms, they were asked, who have you been in, in touch with? And all those people were then contacted and they were told to self-isolate. And that's how, yeah. that's one form of contact tracing. Isn't that much worse in terms of privacy and much more intrusive than an app, just in theory, that can hide all of the actual personal data from the public authorities and just act off of its own bat to transmit the information to individuals who may be affected and leaves out, in effect, the public authorities from making these you know who can you if you imagine oh yeah well i had a i had a date with somebody the other night and yes we got quite close you know that, that kind of personal information which you really don't want to be giving to public authorities at all if you can avoid it wouldn't it be a much better choice to have assuming that privacy controls can be put in place this kind of system which is is much more anonymous i'm not sure how you guarantee those privacy controls i mean there's been a lot of research um, in the past year or two, showing how this idea of anonymized data, that effectively you can de-anonymize data uh, very quickly and easily. And so I think this idea that somehow this information is going to stay anonymous is a bit of a myth, really. 
Um, and while you may not, um, as you say, be wanting to say, well, I had a date with this person um, the other day, in fact, your geolocation data and tracking data may well give insights into what you've been doing, um, how you've been behaving, who you spend time with, um, that give images of your internal life and, and, and your personality, if you like, and the way that you behave, uh, that go even further beyond privacy. So this idea that the information can somehow be neutral and, and not be available if somebody wanted to unpick it, I think is, is quite um, open to debate, certainly, at the moment. What I would say is that, you know, we're here discussing this effectively blind based on the, the reports that we've seen in the media. And what would be useful to understand is who exactly um, is the government consulting with about the, these privacy standards? How exactly is human rights law being embedded in the process of design? And how can this be made transparent so that there can be really effective commentary on the details? I think that's a good place to stop because we can come back once the details are available and see whether they're up for scratch um, and, wh and whether we whether we would consider signing up for this app. Yes, I mean the one the one thing just in terms of the the broader context, which is why I think it's quite difficult to know exactly what you're consenting to and where things might go, is really just um, to flag a, a quote from Orwell from 1984 where he says, not that there was any rule against walking home by an unusual route, but it was enough to draw attention to you if the thought police heard about it. And I think that really gives you a picture of the kind of information, the kind of inferences and the kind of consequences that come from tracking location for whatever reason. Just to add one more thought, is, is there a risk also that this signing up to this app will not be a neutral um, point it will be something which gives you access to other rights such as being able to leave your house or go back to work i think that's entirely possible going back to the discriminatory uh, question um, and there may well then be arguments that well you know responsible people put the app on their phone and have got nothing to be afraid of uh, because you know they're helping society whereas irresponsible people are the people who decide not to put uh, the app on their phone just as well to flag on the, the geolocation tracking point, I think we're at a very interesting juncture um, legally in this country in that there is a, a case, Lloyd against Google, which is currently pending before the Supreme Court to decide whether or not a mass claim can be brought against Google uh, for a backdoor uh, geotracking ability that was put into iPhones. In, I think it was 2011 to 2012. And that case is really interesting because what the, what the litigation seeks to do is to tease out what the damage caused to us by losing control of our data and potentially losing control of our autonomy through the use of, of geotracking on our phones means in practice. And so it's very interesting that while this case is... Um, developing through the courts and it's not clear 
yet whether the case itself will actually be able to be brought. What's being discussed at the moment is, is whether the case um, can be brought as a mass claim. So while this is happening on the one hand, on the other hand, the public is gradually uh, becoming used to or certainly being persuaded to think about the idea for why we should be accepting geotracking into our lives. Let's leave it there and we can perhaps come back to it once the details are available. Thanks very much, Susie. Pleasure. And go off off and enjoy your Easter Monday insofar as we we all can while locked in our bedrooms. Yeah, hopefully there won't be something else by this evening. Thanks so much to Susie Allegre. As always, the Better Human podcast is kindly supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering new LLB undergraduate course tours in London. And you can find out more about their three new lectureships being advertised, including one in human rights at gold.act.uk forward slash law. If you find this podcast interesting and want it to carry on, then please consider supporting it by giving a couple of pounds a month to patreon.com forward slash betterhuman. Thanks very much. I'm Adam Wagner. This is the Better Human Podcast. Keep safe and well and see you next time.